but on Thursday morning, our 32nd wedding anniversary, I think I woke up about four in the morning and I saw a line of fire on the other side of the valley and it was slowly creeping down the valley. And I was having to think about, well, what was I going to do if I was seeing fire leap from treetop to treetop to treetop heading towards the house and the sheds? The fear was intense when I had it, but without a doubt, I always felt that I was being protected. On the 26th of October 2019, lightning struck the Gospers Mountain region in New South Wales, causing one of the first fires of what would eventually become Australia's worst bushfire season on record. As the fires grew, Eddie and Lee Stahovsky, who own a hobby farm in Putty, New South Wales, travelled to their property to carry out some fire preparations. On the 11th of November, they were visited by a member of the local rural fire service. The Gospers Mountain fire was heading their way. With the weather conditions at a catastrophic level and the firefighting resources stretched across the state, they had no choice but to leave. After farewelling his wife and promising her that he was only an hour behind, Eddie remained to complete some last-minute chores. But as he readied to leave, he discovered that all the roads had since been closed. He was trapped. In this episode, I chat with Eddie to hear how he managed to stay calm during the 11 days he spent trapped on his farm how he worked with local firefighters, and what he learnt about the importance of being prepared, both temporarily and spiritually. I'm Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith. Welcome, Eddie. Thanks for joining. Thank you. It's a delight to be helping you out and being involved with you, Maddie. Oh, good. I am equally excited and have been looking forward to chatting to you. How about we start out by you telling me a little about yourself and your family? Well, my name's Eddie Stahovsky. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and probably the most important aspects of my life is that I'm married uh, to a beautiful lady named Lee, who is my strength and my stay. I have two adult children, Ben and Caitlin, who are out of the house and making lives for themselves, and Ben is an electrical engineer and Caitlin is a vet, and I have a wonderful daughter-in-law, Ruth. Um, I've probably got the best job in the world that since I've become a grandfather about three years ago as well. So I've got a precious little grandson named Jethro and a precious granddaughter who was born about six months ago named Alsa. Alsa, that's a really unique name, but I like it. It's an old name and it's spelled A-I-L-S-A. Yeah, it's beautiful. You also have a very interesting and fulfilling professional role. Can you give me an overview of what you do there? Well, I'm an anaesthetist and an intensivist, and if I say that to a lot of people, people aren't necessarily sure what that uh, involves. But my background is that following high school, I studied medicine at the University of Sydney, and I graduated as a doctor in 1987. And later in that year, Lee and I were married in the Sydney Australia Temple. After a few years of working as a hospital resident, I went on to train as a specialist in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine. And I completed that training in 1996, and thereafter I've had an opportunity to work in a variety of hospitals uh, in both fields. In the anaesthesia field, my job is basically to put people to sleep and to wake them up again. It's more than just a basic job. (laughs) It sounds pretty easy. I know it's a very stressful job, and there's a lot of responsibility placed on you. It's a job that involves the routine being about 98, 99% of the time, Mm -hmm. uh, things going right. And sometimes there are going to be the sheer panic and pandemonium uh, 1%, 2% of the time. 
And it's times like that that you need to fall back upon your training, your experience, uh, your clinical nows, working together as a team within an operating theatre setting and uh, basically making sure that we can uh, pull somebody through uh, their surgery, especially if it's a, a, a crisis or an emergency. Mm. You might be looking after major trauma victims or uh, patients who have got uh, sepsis or overwhelming infection and pus that's in the belly that needs to be drained or uh, a major crisis involving a heart attack and heart failure and urgent coronary bypass surgery needing to be undertaken. So it's quite varied, it's quite responsible, and whilst it's routine a lot of the time, sometimes it turns into a bit of a hair-raising exercise. The other part of what I do is I also work uh, predominantly as a physician in the field of intensive care medicine. Which you did for how long? 12 years you were head of ICU? I was head of ICU for six years altogether, but I've been part of that ICU for about uh, just over 20 years now as well. And that's basically looking after people who are ill uh, with life-threatening conditions that require them to be supported on a mechanical ventilator or on drugs to support their circulation or needing urgent dialysis, uh, procedures to be done by either myself or uh, working with other physicians and specialists as well. Mm. So are you an adrenaline junkie? Because it's sounding a little bit like <laughs> Uh, You make me laugh, but um, I I guess I enjoy the highs and the lows. I learn from the lows and uh, enjoy the highs, especially when uh, we're getting it right. And hopefully we get it right much more often than we get it wrong. Mm. Yeah, well, we definitely need people like you who are able to work, perform at such a high level in such a stressful environment. You've got to have people who can think quickly on their feet, it sounds like which I'm sure we're going to get to later, has served you well in other areas of your life. I wanted to touch on the fact that you're a convert because you haven't always been a member of the church and you didn't actually ever intend to join the church. So how, how did you get to where you are now? Oh, it is true. I am a convert to the church. I joined back in 1985 during my fourth year of studying medicine at university. I started dating a girl in my year at university. Girls, they'll get you. Oh, it's always girls it is. (laughs) And we started to get to know one another better, and I noticed there was something different about her compared to a lot of other girls that I've previously gone out with, and I found out that she was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. (laughs) And so I became an expert about the church. I read the Encyclopedia Britannica, as it was called in those days, the resource that you would go to for all these things like that. Of course, I learned nothing about the church uh, in any uh, way by reading that sort of uh, resource. But I did find out as we were driving one evening to a function at Mortdale Chapel the concept of a life prior to this earth life, prior to this mortality. And I found that absolutely fascinating. It was something that just felt so right, and it was the catalyst for me to have an interest in the church. But no, I had no intention of joining the church whatsoever. Mm. I mean, third year uni, not an easy year. I'm sure you were busy and caught up with other things. So to all of a sudden find yourself learning about another religion and going on that spiritual journey must have been an interesting time to be doing that. 
I think you're right about it being an interesting time because of how busy it was. Um, we sort of, in that year, we hit the hospitals uh, as medical students and we're actually having to learn to practice. And whilst that's all very busy, I was also working about 33 hours a week as a cook at Pancakes of Parramatta and I was living on my own at that time. And so life was extremely busy. And now i dating, going out with a girl who's a member of the church. I have fitted that relationship into uh, the business of life. But um, there was a draw card. The draw card was that there was something here that I felt, and I, I now know and I subsequently learned that it was the spirit. I was able to feel that there was something different being around Lee, being around her friends who are members of the church, and being around the missionaries who are allowed to come in through the door and to teach me the gospel. And at the end of each of the discussions that I had, I thought, not quite for me, but boy, there was something in it. The problem for me was I couldn't get my head around the concept of tithing. And I felt that if I joined the church because of all the other things that I had learned that were so right, but didn't have a testimony of the principle of tithing and didn't practice the law of tithing, then I would be a hypocrite and that would be the wrong thing to do. It stopped me dead in my tracks for about four months and I was happy to have further discussions with the missionaries. I wanted these things, but it didn't feel right until one day I picked up the Book of Mormon that was given to me by the missionaries and I just opened it up in First Nephi chapter 3, verse 7, and it was a section of scripture that was marked in my scriptures. And it wasn't until I read that again that I realized that I'm not going to be asked to live the law of tithing if there isn't a way that is prepared for me to be able to live it. And I felt I needed to exert faith, and I decided to get baptized. And I will say to you that from the time I was baptized through to this day, I have always honored the principle of tithing. I have never faltered, and I have absolutely no regrets in having joined the church. Thank you for sharing that. I loved hearing that story, and I think it puts into context what we're going to discuss today, your experience that you had during the 2019-2020 Australian bushfires. And obviously, your experience was very physical, visceral, but there was a spiritual takeaway to it as well. So let's shift forward now. A couple of years ago, Australia saw the worst bushfire season that it's ever seen. We will be familiar with those horrible months. Most of us experienced it to some degree, whether we were glued to the news or even if we weren't impacted directly, we still saw the smoke in the sky and we smelt it in the air. So I just wanted to list some quick stats to provide that context for our conversation. So the first fires, they, they broke out in September 2019, and it wasn't until Feb 2020 that most of them were extinguished. On the 4th of February, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, confirmed that 33 people, including nine firefighters, had died as a result. A total of 3,094 homes were lost and over 17 million hectares burnt across the East Coast, Western Australia and South Australia. About 48% of Kangaroo Island, Australia's third largest island, was burnt. And conservative estimates also suggest, just based on New South Wales and Victoria alone, that we also lost over 1 billion mammals, birds and reptiles. And we also lost a lot of our heritage listed national parks, or they were affected in some way, New South Wales in particular. 
it really, it, it was a calamitous event. It exceeded the impact of the 2009 Black Saturday and the 1983 Ash Wednesday bushfires combined. So somehow, Eddie, you found yourself caught in the middle of all of this. How did that happen? You, you know, you live in Sydney, but you do also have a rural property. How about you tell me a little bit about your farm? Well, we've got this beautiful little place, 300 acres in an area called Putty. It's located halfway between Windsor and Singleton. It's about an hour and a half drive from our home in Castleville in Sydney. We bought this place as a retreat, as a getaway back in 2011. And we've now ended up using it as a goat farm. We've currently got 42 goats. We've got two donkeys that serve as farm guard animals, protecting the goats against uh, wild dog attacks. They're guard dogs, essentially? That's so cool. Uh, they're, they're farm guard animals. So animals like donkeys and alpacas, uh, mules and llamas, and there's a couple of breeds of dog. I noticed farm guard animals, they bond with sheep or they bond with goats and become protective of them so that if there are wild dogs or some other threat that occurs, they will step in. And certainly if you um, take a dog into the paddocks with our donkeys and our goats, those donkeys will go for the dog without a doubt. Wow. Side note, that bond with the shepherd, I'm drawing some real spiritual parallels between Jesus Christ as our shepherd and riding in on the donkey as our ultimate protector. Oh, that's, that's a fascinating way. I hadn't thought about that myself like that. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. No worries. Feel free to use it. So they are, they are farm guard animals, and they are, they've got personalities, those donkeys, as you'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> We've also got a very productive beehive as well. We love sharing the farm. We share it with members of our family. We share it with friends mm-hmm. as well. It's a place to ride bikes. It's a place for me to practice new skills and my own plumber on the place. It's a great outlet for me compared to what I do on a day-by-day basis. Mm. So this farm obviously was located in some of the bushfire threat areas. Now, for the average Australian, bushfires are a common threat. And even if you don't have a farm, even if you're living in a metropolitan city, we still generally grow up learning how to, you know, minimize the risk of a house fire, such as cleaning out our gutters, you know, getting all the dry leaves out and, um, you know, keeping the yard free. With your farm, what kind of precautions do you normally take to protect it? We've learnt a lot by having this place and we've learnt a lot about bushfires and the threat that can be posed by them because 29 days after we took possession of the property, we ended up with fire that raised through half the property, took out all the fencing, took out all the gateways and came within about five metres of the house. And we weren't there at the time. We'd only been up to the property probably on four days, giving it a good clean out. We hadn't even completed all the preparatory work from that point of view, having taken possession of it only a month earlier, when a neighbour's pile burn got out of control. It ended up causing all this damage that we only found out about a day afterwards. And so we finally got up there and uh, found that the house was intact. We found the good work that the local rural fire service uh, volunteers had done in saving the day, saving the house, saving the sheds. And as a result of that, we ended up turning up uh, a few weeks later to the annual local rural fire service open days. And we got to meet a lot of the volunteers that are part of the team there. Obviously, I uh, thank them quite profusely. Are the majority of them volunteers? All of them oh, are volunteers. Wow. And that is the wonderful thing about these people. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing about our country, actually, the degree of volunteerism that we have. We learnt a lot from the open day. We 
went back and learnt about the various fire pumps that came with the property. We bought up additional hoses, additional firefighting uh, pumps, and we also developed a fire plan. And as a result of that, we were prepared uh, for what was going to happen later. It's interesting that you had that so early on, only 29 days into owning that property. But, I mean, I guess it threw you in the deep end so that you were ready for the next time. No doubt about being thrown into the deep end. (laughs) So when did you first realize that your farm was at risk in this most recent bushfire season? Well, we knew that the Gosford Mountain fire had started about two or three weeks earlier, but it was a long way from us. Uh, Whilst we've been able to see smoke from where we were when we were on the property, um, it wasn't a particular threat, wasn't perceived to be one. But uh, Lee and I went up to the farm on Monday, the 11th of November 2019, and I remember that day really, really well because at 9.30 that night, whilst we had gone up for the purposes of just checking on the animals, making sure that they were okay, uh, nothing had gone wrong with the fencing, attending to some chores that we needed to do, 9.30 at night we got a visit from one of our neighbours who was part of the rural fire service and he basically outlined to us the risks that we're all facing uh, over the coming days with the Gospers Mountain Fire in combination with the catastrophic weather conditions and uh, he let us know that the problems also existed with the resources uh, having been stretched across the state. It may well be that we couldn't rely on getting any assistance if the fire was to start to directly threaten us. And he was making that visit to all the people that might still be on uh, the seven properties that are on Box Gap Road, our road up at Putty. And we were strongly advised uh, to either leave that night or at the latest uh, tomorrow morning uh, to get out of there and to prepare the place. But most importantly, to make sure that there wasn't any uh, threat to life or limb um, as a result of what uh, was an unpredictable fire at that time. So his visit was kind of a last resort measure. Otherwise, there would have been fireys who would have tried to help out? There, you've got to remember, I think there were fires, active fires burning um, in the north coast of New South Wales. The catastrophic conditions were statewide at that time, so we couldn't rely on a fire truck being available to service our property or our neighbours' properties if we were to have an active fire on that, compared to other times when we can ring triple O and get help most of the time within the space of maybe 15 or 20 minutes. But uh, because of the weather conditions, because of the proximity of the fire, it was going to be safer for us to get off the property and to head back home to Sydney. And that basically was our plan A. We would prepare the place and then leave. I read that at one point New South Wales had around 1,600 firefighters working in the field, but when you think about it, spread across the whole state with that many fires at one time, it makes sense that there just there weren't enough resources to go around. Well, Lee and I basically didn't sleep very much that night. We ended up making a plan. We contacted some friends and we contacted our daughter, Caitlin, who lived in Newcastle. She ended up hiring a horse float and drove out that night uh, so that we could take the two donkeys off the property. We had a plan as far as the goats were concerned to release them from the paddocks if the fire was uh, getting close. And just let them run free or? 
we'd let them run free in that sort of circumstance. That's exactly right. And we had a plan to be able to uh, make the house as protected as possible. Uh, we have a rooftop fire protection system. If the fire was coming close, we deployed that, turned that on. We'd had probably about two hours of water supply available to us if we turned all the pumps on and uh, basically tried to concentrate uh, the pumps pumping water on the house and the sheds uh, to protect those areas. Uh, basically, we didn't want to get into any fuel storage or any other uh, vehicles that were there that might explode or cause any other uh, damage. And the next morning, after a couple of hours of sleep, um, we loaded the stubborn donkeys onto the horse boat. So they, they didn't want to go? Oh, they didn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> they have got personalities, those two donkeys, <laughs> and donkeys have got a reputation for being stubborn. Yeah. Well, it actually took some neighbours who came onto our property, the help of four burly guys to be able to get these donkeys on. What, drag them on? They did a great job. They hauled them on and I got Lee and Caitlin to leave the property. It probably was about uh, 9 or 10 o'clock that morning and I said, look, I'll be about an hour or two following you. I've just got to make some final preparations, test all the pumps. We've got five different uh, uh, petrol-driven firefighting pumps. We've got lots of different hoses. I need to roll them out. I needed to clear the gutters on the roof. I needed to check the rooftop fire protection system. And lo and behold, about an hour after Lee and Caitlin had left, I see a rural fire service truck coming onto the property. And it takes about a minute to come from the main gate to the house. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Not a good sign. I'm thinking, not a good sign. This is my first time I'm getting really worried. And I'm thinking they're coming to tell me that the fire is on our property somewhere. It's imminent. It's going to be threatening our home and our sheds, and it was probably time to leave. That was what I had going on in my mind for the minute that they took to get to me. And I just needed another hour to finish my preparations. I hadn't quite got it all done. I just wanted that extra hour. The rural fire service officers got there. They told me they were just going along Box Gap Road because our properties uh, on that road are sort of the perimeter or the rim of the Putty Valley. And so we were the first places that were going to be under threat before the fire gets into uh, the Putty Valley. And they were basically coming around to check if there was any bodies still on any of the properties. And I said, guys, I just needed another hour. They said, you're fine. Fire's still about 10 kilometres away, heading in a direction diagonally away from you. We'll check up on you again later. We're just going to go check on the other places. And that provided me with a great sense of relief to find out what was actually going on except as opposed to what I was thinking was going on. So I had my imagination at play, and I thought these guys coming onto my property was a bad sign, but it wasn't. They were there checking up on oh, us. Terrific. The relief. Great. <laughs> and I basically got on yeah. with it. I did my rest of my preparation, finalised it all, the real fire service guys came back about two hours later and I said, guys, I'm ready to go. What's happening? What's the latest information you got? They said, you can't go. The roads are closed out of Putty. You can't go north. You can't go south. It's now um, a situation in which you can't leave. 
And I said, fine, I'd move on to plan B. And plan B was our stay and defend plan because you've got to have a plan A, you've got to have a plan B, you've got to have so a plan C. So you'd already formed that with Lee before you left? Oh, and it, it's been something that we'd formed even years earlier in the preparation for what might happen. Not that I ever anticipated having to use plan B, but I was now in plan B. I was having to stay on the property for who knows how long. And I've got water supply, no problem. I can last on the farm for a year with the water supply we've got. I've got food supply for uh, three months, no problem from that point of view. And I've got my pumps ready. I've got my hoses ready. I've got my rooftop fire protection system ready. And I've got my plans, how I would now react if a fire was directly going to come and uh, threaten us. And how were you feeling at that point in time? Were you level-headed still, just get on with the next stage, or were you a bit fearful? I will say to you that I sensed over the that day as well as the next three or four days, on four separate occasions, I felt a great intensity of fear on and off. On three of the four occasions, it was all short-lived. It only lasted maybe one, two, three, four minutes, that sort of thing. And on one occasion, it lasted for around about eight hours. Oh, gosh. And that was on the Friday about uh, – we're now talking we're on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. On the Friday was when I felt a, a long-standing fear because of the intensity of uh, the, the smoke that was in the region, and I didn't know what was going on in certain parts of the property, and that made it difficult. Okay, so we're at Plan B now, and it was Monday that you found out from the fireys that you couldn't leave? We had the visit from the fireys on Monday night. Mm -hmm. We got the animals off the property on the Tuesday. Uh, I had the visit from the fireys whilst Caitlin and Lee had uh, already left the property, so that was the Tuesday itself. And they told us on their second visit that they weren't able to, that we weren't able to leave now, that I had to stay. And they, were, they let me know that there was one other person on Box Gap Road, and that was my neighbour on the other side of the valley. And so we got in touch with each other. We made sure that we were looking out for each other as well. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing the degree of camaraderie that you can start to feel with somebody when you start to go through a shared adversity as well. And I got to know Mike, our neighbour, and he got to know me a whole lot better over the um, coming 11 days, as it turned out to be, that I was ending up being trapped on the farm. 11 days. Wow. 11 days. But, you know, we looked out uh, after each other um, and we looked out for each other. And there was a sense of reassurance because of that as well. Although I was very blessed, I had power throughout all of this to the property and I had my lines of communication open as well. Our landline, our phone landline was working. Our mobile tower was working. Our 3G repeater on the house was working. So I was able to keep in touch with Lee and I was able to send her photos and messages and let her know what was going on and what I anticipated was going to be happening as well uh, over the coming days. That's fantastic. I was going to ask about that because if I were Lee, yeah, I would be panicking, not knowing if you're okay or not. Well, it's Tuesday and our 32nd wedding anniversary was coming up on the Thursday, the oh, 14th no. of November as well. <laughs> I was due back in Sydney for uh, dinner that night. Oh, instead you were fighting fires. How romantic. <laughs> now, had you had any firefighting experience prior to that moment? 
I will say to you, none whatsoever. Okay. Except for campfires in the past and growing up with fireworks <laughs> as a child in Sydney, um, there was no firefighting experience uh, at all to speak mm. of. Okay. So did you have to move into Plan C at all? Wednesday is a day of uh, watch and wait. Uh, lots of smoke around, without doubt. No direct fires to be seen. But on Thursday morning, our 32nd wedding anniversary, I think I woke up about four in the morning and I saw a line of fire <gasps> on the other side of the valley. And it was slowly creeping down the valley as fire does. The winds of two days earlier had subsided. It wasn't as if it was advancing uh, in any great haste or hurry, but it certainly was just creeping slowly down, down the valley. We had 50 fireys come onto the property, uh, 12 rural fire service trucks, replenishing tanker for National Parks and Wildlife Service vehicles, two command vehicles come onto the property. Basically, I had one of the very knowledgeable locals who was a member of the Rural Fire Service who said that uh, the threat is real. We need to now uh, start a backburning operation on your property as well as some other properties on Box Gap Road. And was that a really hot week as well? Oh, it was a hot week. The weather was hot. It was hot and dry, but at least the winds had died down compared to two days earlier. And what I realized, though, it took me about 15 or 20 minutes because that was one of those occasions in which I'm thinking, okay, where am I now? Am I in a situation of having to invoke Plan C? That is, you know, the fire threat is imminent. I have to turn on some sprinklers. I have to turn on the water gushing over the, the sheds in the house. But it took me about 15 or 20 minutes to work out that that fire on the other side of the valley was part of a controlled burn that was happening by the rural fire service. And that just provided me with a great deal of assurance. That and a feeling of a sense that I was being looked after as well in response to prayer. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> Knowing that there were people out there monitoring the fire, watching it, that it wasn't just coming straight from your property, that must have been very relieving. So then they came to you on Thursday. So out of, out, out of the seven properties, there were about uh, four that were needing to be backburned. And my neighbour's uh, property had uh, they'd already started uh, the midnight before and they were going to start on our place on that Thursday afternoon. And I, they needed to seek permission to do a controlled backburn on the property. And I said, you guys are the experts. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I knew that if this goes right, I was going to have the best fire protection for the next five years. If it goes wrong, well, it's something that we're prepared for. For those who might be unfamiliar with how backburning actually helps somebody, you know, lighting a fire doesn't sound like a good thing to do. Could you just give a, a brief overview of why you wanted them to do that? These people know what they're doing. The Rural Fire Service fights fire with fire in the majority of circumstances. And what they will do is a backburn in this situation. If the weather conditions are right, and that means the temperature, the dryness of the air, and the winds most importantly, depending upon where the location is of assets to be protected in relation to a fire, another fire is started with the hope that it's moving then away from the assets like a house or sheds, and then heading towards where the fire is or has been and joins up to that area. And that newly burnt section of ground 
now becomes a zone of protection because it can't light up again. And that becomes the buffer between us and uh, the actual fire front, which is the main danger. Wonderful. Thanks for explaining. So they went on to some of the outskirts of your property then and started burning around there? Mm, They started actually about 20 metres from our sheds and 50 metres from their house. What? (laughs) They did ask me if I had a plan, if this all uh, went wrong, and I said yes, I had a plan, and I explained to the the head of the rural fire service, well, I'll deploy these rooftop sprinklers, I'll set these sprinklers off with this pump, this water supply, and I head towards uh, either the pool to throw myself into there or into our dam about 70 metres away and throw myself into there knowing that they are safe locations because there isn't any trees around that might light up and fall into the dam or fall on me or whatever. So I had Plan C available to me uh, from that point of view if things were going to go wrong. So Plan C was to protect yourself. Correct. Release the goats from the property. It is basically protect life, and that is what the Rural Fire Service officers do as well. Even though they put themselves in harm's way, often enough, their primary role is to make sure that they don't end up coming to any harm or dying as a result of what they're doing. Brilliant. Oh, just so terrifying imagining making that plan, though. I've got visuals of you jumping into the pool while fire rushes over you. These, these vivid images must have been coming to you during that week. How did you cope with the fear? <laughs> it's interesting. After we had all the equipment and supplies in place, this was all back on the Tuesday, I started rehearsing, well, what am I going to do with all of this? I had the theoretical knowledge, mm. although it's hard to call it knowledge because it sort of was on paper now being put into action. And I was having to think about, well, what was I going to do if I was seeing fire leap from treetop to treetop to treetop heading towards us down our valley towards the house and the sheds? And I basically rehearsed again and again and again how I would deploy the various pumps and in what order, release the goats, get in the vehicle, try to get off the property. If I can't, if I was trapped, what I would have as a backup plan to throw myself into the pool or to the dam, knowing that there was two months, sorry, two hours of water supply to drench the place and hopefully protect it as a fire front takes about 10 or 15 minutes to pass over a particular area. Wow. And now you were there for 11 days. Were you getting any sleep throughout that? I'll tell you I slept about three or four hours a night. It wasn't a restful sleep, but it was enough sleep. And I'll tell you that there was enough adrenaline surging through my body (laughs) to keep me awake through the day into the evening. So I've got videos of uh, the fires that the uh, fire is lit up on the Thursday afternoon, the Thursday night uh, across the property. And I was going, talking from fiery to fiery, uh, learning from them as I went along as well, uh, what they do, how they do it, uh, enough so that I decided, oh, okay, if I survived all of this, which I felt very comfortable that was that was going to be the case, because there was such great support, great um, resources that were being put into uh, protecting our place as well as their, our neighbouring properties. I felt that I was going to be able to make myself even better prepared for the future and I already had a list that I was putting together of further equipment that I was going to buy 
And that included a fire truck that I ended up buying about two months later as well. A and fire a fire truck. service fire truck. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. So you were able to keep your mind occupied with positive, actionable things rather than just, yeah, sitting in fear for the entire time. Oh, uh, look, the, the fear was short-lived. It was intense when I had it. But on the Friday was the day that I had fear for probably about eight or ten hours through the course of that afternoon. The fireys had been on the property the day before. There was a good barrier over around about half our property between us and the main fire front, but the other side of the property hadn't been backburned. And it meant that if the embers from the main fire front, which can travel 10 kilometres, 15 kilometres, uh, in strong wind conditions, hot, dry winds can carry those embers so far that it can set trees alight uh, 10 kilometres away from the main fire front. So I knew that there was still a risk to the property, but the smoke was so dense at this time, I had to be wearing a mask to be outside, I had to wear goggles, and I didn't have 50 fireys on the property because they were now on another property, another neighbour's property, uh, taking care of a backburning operation in that area. And I felt that I didn't have the information I needed that I wanted to be able to feel completely comfortable. Mm-hmm. There was so much smoke that I, couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to tell if the fires were starting to light up trees one or 200 metres away. That's how dense wow. the smoke was. Wow, was the sky all black? It was grey. It was grey. And it's the thickest smoke I've ever had to um, live through. But without a doubt, I'll say that whilst I had this fear from an uncertainty point of view, I also had with it a sense of calmness as well. I always felt that I was being watched over. I always felt that I was being protected. And I felt that Heavenly Father knew me and knew of my individual circumstances. And I kept having the words of hymns, and particularly hymn number 85, How Firm the Foundation, going through my mind. And I will say that that hymn, together with the importance of prayer and of listening to the Spirit and feeling the Spirit, I was able to attenuate that fear quite substantially, so much so that once that day had come to an end, there was no further fear that night. I felt a peace and a calm even though I didn't have any certainty as to what was happening with the fires or the fire front at that time. The hymn is actually quite beautiful and the words very pertinent to your situation. It's my favourite hymn, hymn number 85, How Firm the Foundation. It's verse 5 in particular. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And I got a huge amount of peace as a result of those words and that hymn. And I I thought about it, even if we were in a situation where the physical infrastructure of the property was destroyed, if the house was destroyed, the sheds were destroyed, my quad bikes were destroyed. My tractor was destroyed. Not my car was bikes. destroyed. <laughs> no, not the quad bikes, but I mean, <laughs> I protect one. I'd have to get out of there with one of them at least. <laughs> yeah, right out of the flames on one, like in a Hollywood movie. 
But what I really didn't want to do, I, I didn't want to die. I didn't think I was going to die, to be honest with you. But I also didn't want to be burnt. That was probably my biggest fear because I've looked after burns victims in the past, over the last few decades, in an intensive care unit and in an operating theatre. Um, I did not want to end up being a burns victim and going through uh, the torturous trials that they go through in trying to survive a major burns injury. But I had no problem if things were going to be destroyed. I felt a peace and a calmness as a result of that. We didn't end up with things being destroyed. Yes, uh, 80% of the property got burnt out, but the sheds were protected, the house was protected, the lives were protected, the goats were protected, the beehive was protected. We didn't lose anything of major value, but what I did do is gain a strengthening of my testimony as a result of what I had to go through. Probably the greatest things I learned weren't the temporal things, but the spiritual things. In learning that my Heavenly Father loves me, knows me, knows me personally, and knows of my individual circumstances as well. And I likened it onto a little of what Joseph Smith experienced in the sacred grove immediately before he ended up with a visitation by Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. But there was a darkness, there was a fear. There was an intensity associated with that. And to a degree, I had that same intensity of fear at times. But that that darkness and that fear was able to be pierced by the light and the peace that can be afforded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is beautiful. Thank you for putting it in such a, a simple way. It almost sounds like... In that moment, you had a very vivid picture of what mattered and what didn't. It would have put things into perspective for you, I'm assuming. It did. And I don't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing, but in my communications with Lee in particular, I kept reminding her, "Hun, i I'm safe. I'm okay. I've had fireys on the place. They've done a great job. I feel safe. I feel that I'm being looked after. But I also finished off my conversation with her by saying, we have been married in the temple 32 years ago. We are married for time and all eternity. No matter what happens, we will always love God and never falter from that. And that was meant to provide an reassurance, although sometimes, <laughs> hang on, what's that message you're giving me? Uh, wait, yeah. <laughs> are you going to die? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Happy anniversary, honey. Yeah, exactly. I'll see you in the next life. <laughs> no. Uh, that, that knowledge must have been very, very comforting. What do you think it would have been like to face the fires without a faith in God? Do you think you would have still felt some kind of divine presence? Or I think about that question. My answer to you is that I really don't know. Um, but I would, I would hazard a guess that I wouldn't have felt the same profound sense of peace and a calmness uh, that follows prayer, especially when I prayed after a sense of urgency or worry about what was going on. Um, you know, I, I, I knew what I was feeling when I felt the Spirit providing me with a reassurance, and I knew where it was coming from. Yeah. Hard to know where we would be without the gospel, but you can at least see how it did help you. Oh, without a doubt. 
So I've been thinking about this, and this is the kind of story that you'd probably hear in a general conference talk when they're talking about food storage, but then spiritual preparation. Now, obviously, you had already done quite a lot after the first fire experience to, to get that food storage into place. You had your water for a sufficient amount of time. You'd also prepared the property, and that really put you in good stead. But what did you learn about the importance of spiritual preparation from this experience? I think if, if you prepared, you need not fear. Fiery after fiery would tell me, your preparations are fantastic. They love the water supply that I had. Some people only had 1,000 litres of water. I had 160,000 litres of water in, uh, in various tanks and storage uh, areas like the pools and even more in the dam as well that I had access to. I had hoses that were 40 metres long that were an inch and a half in diameter. So I had the temple preparation there. And then there was the spiritual preparation as well. Mm. Knowing where to turn to times of crisis, knowing who God is before the crisis comes was of such value to me. I look back on that. There wasn't that hesitation like who's going to help me. You knew exactly who your source of strength I knew, was. I knew that I was known. Although I was physically alone on some days, I didn't feel like I had been left alone. And I think it's valuable for us to know who God is before the crisis comes and you'll only get to know him better for passing through the crisis itself is how I felt afterwards. Amazing. Thank you. I suppose that leads me to maybe my next question. Again, thinking about this, this topic of preparation and spiritual preparation, I enjoyed the line from Elder Wong's talk in General Conference this morning from the Sunday morning session. He said that if we build our foundation on Jesus Christ, we cannot fall. We may not be able to change all of what is coming, but we can choose how we prepare for what is coming. And I really have a greater appreciation for what that means listening to your story. How do you think we can, moving forward, spiritually protect ourselves from dangers that might come our way? Like you said, the word foundation before, our foundation being in Christ, I think it's ever so important for us to get the basics right. And I come back to prayer and scripture study. It's an answer that seems so trite. My prayer and scripture study will be 90% of the, uh, the answers. But it's so common as a piece of advice that we hear in the church. But we need to recognize and remember that if we do it with pure intent, we can have a powerful effect. And I think sometimes with our prayers, we'll petition the Lord, but do we take the time to listen to his response? Do we take the time to read the scriptures? But more importantly, even if it's one verse, do we ponder it? And I really love the introduction to the Book of Mormon. Down towards the bottom, there is a paragraph that tells us that if we seek a testimony, to gain a testimony of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, what do we need to do? We need to read it. We need to ponder its messages. And we need to pray about it to Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, and listen to the Spirit, and then we can get a testimony of the Book of Mormon. Well, you've got to read, so you've got to do something. You've got to ponder, get close to God about it, and you need to then listen. And that's what I found myself doing a lot of whilst I was alone. Thank you. What a great answer. Well, final question then. The title of this podcast is Choosing Faith. In those tense days that you spent on the farm, it must have taken great faith to choose to trust that you would be safe. So what does choosing faith mean to you, Eddie? 
We're often confronted with choices in our lives, and telling the difference between black and white, to be honest with you, is fairly easy. It's the telling the difference between the shades of grey that becomes the challenge. And whenever a choice has to be made, in my life, I need to make sure that it's in keeping with the principles of the gospel, and I strive to follow the counsel that's granted to us in the ninth section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 8 and 9 wherein we're reminded that we need to study things out when we have decisions to make, study it out in our mind, then ask the Lord if it be right. And if it be right, we will know in the way we can sense individually the spirit in our lives, whether it is right or not. If it, is not, if it be not right, as the scripture says, you will have no such feelings and that you'll have a stupor of thought. And for me, it's coming back and making those choices that are consistent with the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to be able to know that the decision is right by the feeling of the Holy Ghost being part of my life. And I value that greatly. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed Eddie's story, then please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast, give it a review, or share it with a friend. I really appreciate your support. See you next time.